Section 32 of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1, by the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. Chapter 7C. The Accident's Organizational Causes, Part 3. NASA's Barriers to Communication, Integration, Information Systems, and Databases. By their very nature, high-risk technologies are exceptionally difficult to manage. Complex and intricate, they consist of numerous interrelated parts. Standing alone, components may function adequately, and failure modes may be anticipated. Yet when components are integrated into a total system and work in concert, unanticipated interactions can occur that can lead to catastrophic outcomes. The risks inherent in these technical systems are heightened when they are produced and operated by complex organizations that can also break down in unanticipated ways. The shuttle program is such an organization. All of these factors make effective communication, between individuals and between programs, absolutely critical. However, the structure and complexity of the shuttle program hinders communication. The shuttle program consists of government and contract personnel who cover an array of scientific and technical disciplines and are affiliated with various dispersed space, research, and test centers. NASA derives its organizational complexity from its origins as much as its widely varied missions. NASA centers naturally evolved with different points of focus, a divergence that the Rogers Commission found evident in the propensity of martial personnel to resolve problems without including program managers outside their center, especially managers at Johnson, to whom they officially reported. See Chapter 5. Despite periodic attempts to emphasize safety, NASA's frequent reorganizations in the drive to become more efficient reduced the budget for safety, sending employees conflicting messages and creating conditions more conducive to the development of a conventional bureaucracy than to the maintenance of a safety-conscious research and development organization. Over time, a pattern of ineffective communication has resulted, leaving risks improperly defined, problems unreported, and concerns unexpressed. The question is, why? The transition to the Spaceflight Operations Contract, and the effects it initiated, provides part of the answer. In the Spaceflight Operations Contract, NASA encountered a completely new set of structural constraints that hindered effective communication. New organizational and contractual requirements demanded an even more complex system of shared management reviews, reporting relationships, safety oversight and insight, and program information development, dissemination, and tracking. The Shuttle Independent Assessment Team's report documented these changes, noting that, quote, the size and complexity of the shuttle system and of the NASA contractor relationships place extreme importance on understanding, communication, and information handling, end quote. Among other findings, the Shuttle Independent Assessment Team observed that, 
the current shuttle program culture is too insular. There is a potential for conflicts between contractual and programmatic goals. There are deficiencies in problem and waiver tracking systems. The exchange of communication across the shuttle program hierarchy is structurally limited, both upward and downward. The board believes that deficiencies in communication, including those spelled out by the shuttle independent assessment team, were a foundation for the Columbia accident. These deficiencies are byproducts of a cumbersome, bureaucratic, and highly complex shuttle program structure and the absence of authority in two key program areas that are responsible for integrating information across all programs and elements in the shuttle program. Integration Structures NASA did not adequately prepare for the consequences of adding organizational structure and process complexity in the transition to the spaceflight operations contract. The agency's lack of a centralized clearinghouse for integration and safety further hindered safe operations. In the board's opinion, the Shuttle Integration and Shuttle Safety, Reliability and Quality Assurance Offices do not fully integrate information on behalf of the shuttle program. This is due, in part, to an irregular division of responsibilities between the Integration Office and the Orbiter Vehicle Engineering Office and the absence of a truly independent safety organization. Within the shuttle program, the Orbiter Office handles many key integration tasks, even though the Integration Office appears to be the more logical office to conduct them. The Orbiter Office does not actively participate in the Integration Control Board, and Orbiter Office managers are actually ranked above their Integration Office counterparts. These uncoordinated roles result in conflicting and erroneous information, and support the perception that the Orbiter Office is isolated from the Integration Office and has its own priorities. The shuttle program's structure and process for safety and mission assurance activities further confuse authority and responsibility by giving the program's safety and mission assurance manager technical oversight of the safety aspects of the space flight operations contract, while simultaneously making the Johnson Space Shuttle Division Chief responsible for advising the program on safety performance. As a result, no one office or person in program management is responsible for developing an integrated risk assessment above the subsystem level that would provide a comprehensive picture of total program risks. The net effect is that many shuttle program safety, quality, and mission assurance roles are never clearly defined. Safety Information Systems Numerous reviews and independent assessments have noted that NASA's safety system does not effectively manage risk. In particular, these reviews have observed that the processes in which NASA tracks and attempts to mitigate the risks posed by components on its critical items list is flawed. The post-challenger evaluation of Space Shuttle Risk Assessment and Management Report, 1988, concluded that, quote, the committee views NASA Critical Items List CIL, waiver decision-making process as being subjective, with little in the way of formal and consistent criteria for approval or rejection of waivers. 
Waiver decisions appear to be driven almost exclusively by the design-based failure mode effects analysis, FMEA, slash CIL retention rationale, rather than being based on an integrated assessment of all inputs to risk management. The retention rationales appear biased toward proving that the design is safe, sometimes ignoring significant evidence to the contrary. End quote. The report continues, quote, The committee has not found an independent detailed analysis or assessment of the CIL retention rationale, which considers all inputs to the risk assessment process. End quote. Ten years later, the Shuttle Independent Assessment Team reported, quote, Risk management process erosion created by the desire to reduce costs. End quote. The Shuttle Independent Assessment Team argued strongly that NASA safety and mission assurance should be restored to its previous role of an independent oversight body, and safety and mission assurance not be simply a safety auditor. Space Shuttle Safety Upgrade Program NASA presented a Space Shuttle Safety Upgrade Initiative to Congress as part of its fiscal year 2001 budget in March 2000. This initiative sought to create, quote, a proactive upgrade program to keep shuttle flying safely and efficiently to 2012 and beyond, to meet agency commitments and goals for human access to space, end quote. The planned shuttle safety upgrades included electric auxiliary power unit, improved main landing gear tire, orbiter cockpit slash avionics upgrades, Space Shuttle Main Engine Advanced Health Management System, Block 3 Space Shuttle Main Engine, Solid Rocket Booster Thrust Vector Control Slash Auxiliary Power Unit Upgrades Plan, Redesigned Solid Rocket Motor, Propellant Grain Geometry Modification and External Tank Upgrades, Friction Stir Weld. The plan called for the upgrades to be completed by 2008. However, as discussed in Chapter 5, Every proposed safety upgrade, with a few exceptions, was either not approved or was deferred. The irony of the Space Shuttle Safety Upgrade Program was that the strategy placed emphasis on keeping the shuttle flying safely and efficiently to 2012 and beyond, yet the Space Flight Leadership Council accepted the upgrades only as long as they were financially feasible. Funding a safety upgrade in order to fly safely and then cancelling it for budgetary reasons, makes the concept of mission safety rather hollow. The board found similar problems with integrated hazard analyses of debris strikes on the orbiter. In addition, the information systems supporting the shuttle, intended to be tools for decision-making, are extremely cumbersome and difficult to use at any level. The following addresses the hazard tracking tools and major databases in the shuttle program that promote risk management. Hazard Analysis A fundamental element of system safety is managing and controlling hazards. NASA's only guidance on hazard analysis is outlined in the Methodology for Conduct of Space Shuttle Program Hazard Analysis, which merely lists tools available. Therefore, it is not surprising that hazard analysis processes are applied inconsistently across systems, subsystems, assemblies, and components. 
United Space Alliance, which is responsible for both orbiter integration and shuttle safety reliability and quality assurance, delegates hazard analysis to Boeing. However, as of 2001, the shuttle program no longer requires Boeing to conduct integrated hazard analyses. Instead, Boeing now performs hazard analysis only at the subsystem level. In other words, Boeing analyzes hazards to components and elements, but is not required to consider the shuttle as a whole. Since the current failure mode effects analysis slash critical item list process is designed for bottom-up analysis at the component level, it cannot effectively support the kind of top-down hazard analysis that is needed to inform managers on risk trends and identify potentially harmful interactions between systems. The Critical Item List, CIL, tracks 5,396 individual shuttle hazards, of which 4,222 are deemed criticality 1-1R. Of these, 3,233 have waivers. CRIT 1-1R component failures are defined as those that will result in loss of the orbiter and crew. Waivers are granted whenever a critical item list component cannot be redesigned or replaced. More than 36% of these waivers have not been reviewed in 10 years, a sign that NASA is not aggressively monitoring changes in system risk. It is worth noting that the shuttle's thermal protection system is on the critical item list, and an existing hazard analysis and hazard report deals with debris strikes. As discussed in Chapter 6, Hazard Report 37 is ineffectual as a decision aid, yet the shuttle program never challenged its validity at the pivotal STS-113 flight readiness review. Although the shuttle program has undoubtedly learned a great deal about the technological limitations inherent in shuttle operations, it is equally clear that risk, as represented by the number of critical items list and waivers, has grown substantially without a vigorous effort to assess and reduce technical problems that increase risk. An information system bulging with over 5,000 critical items and 3,200 waivers is exceedingly difficult to manage. Hazard Reports Hazard reports, written either by the Space Shuttle Program or a contractor, document conditions that threaten the safe operation of the shuttle. Managers use these reports to evaluate risk and justify flight. During mission preparations, contractors and centers review all baseline hazard reports to ensure they are current and technically correct. Board investigators found that a large number of hazard reports contained subjective and qualitative judgments, such as believed and, based on experience from previous flights, this hazard is an accepted risk. A critical ingredient of a healthy safety program is the rigorous implementation of technical standards. These standards must include more than hazard analysis or low-level technical activities. Standards must integrate project engineering and management activities. Finally, a mechanism for feedback on the effectiveness of system safety engineering and management needs to be built into procedures to learn if safety engineering and management methods are weakening over time. Dysfunctional Databases 
In its investigation, the board found that the information systems that support the shuttle program are extremely cumbersome and difficult to use in decision-making at any level. For obvious reasons, these shortcomings imperil the shuttle program's ability to disseminate and share critical information among its many layers. This section explores the report databases that are crucial to effective risk management. Problem Reporting and Corrective Action The Problem Reporting and Corrective Action database records any nonconformances, instances in which a requirement is not met. Formerly, different centers and contractors used the Problem Reporting and Corrective Action database differently, which prevented comparisons across its database. NASA recently initiated an effort to integrate these databases to permit anyone in the agency to access information from different centers. This system, Web Program Compliance Assurance and Status System, WebPCAS, is supposed to provide easier access to consolidated information and facilitates higher-level searches. However, NASA's safety managers have complained that the system is too time-consuming and cumbersome. Only employees trained on the database seem capable of using WebPCAS effectively. One particularly frustrating aspect, of which the board is acutely aware, is the database's waiver section. It is a critical information source, but only the most expert users can employ it effectively. The database is also incomplete. For instance, in the case of foam strikes on the thermal protection system, only strikes that were declared in-flight anomalies are added to the problem reporting and corrective action database, which masks the full extent of the foam debris trends. Lessons Learned Information System The Lessons Learned Information System database is a much simpler system to use, and it can assist with hazard identification and risk assessment. However, personnel familiar with the Lessons Learned Information System indicate that design engineers and mission assurance personnel use it only on an ad hoc basis, therefore limiting its utility. The board is not the first to note such deficiencies. Numerous reports, including most recently a General Accounting Office 2001 report, highlighted fundamental weaknesses in the collection and sharing of lessons learned by program and project managers. Conclusions Throughout the course of this investigation, the board found that the shuttle program's complexity demands highly effective communication, yet integrated hazard reports and risk analyses are rarely communicated effectively, nor are the many databases used by shuttle program engineers and managers capable of translating operational experiences into effective risk management practices. Although the Space Shuttle system has conducted a relatively small number of missions, there is more than enough data to generate performance trends. As it is currently structured, the Shuttle program does not use data-driven safety methodologies to their fullest advantage. 7.5. Organizational Causes Impact of a Flawed Safety Culture on STS-107 in this section, the board examines how and why an array of processes, groups, and individuals in the shuttle program fail to appreciate the severity and implications of the foam strike on STS-107. 
The board believes that the shuttle program should have been able to detect the foam trend, and more fully appreciate the danger it represented. Recall that safety culture refers to the collection of characteristics and attitudes in an organization, promoted by its leaders and internalized by its members, that makes safety an overriding priority. In the following analysis, the board outlines shortcomings in the Space Shuttle Program, Debris Assessment Team, and Mission Management Team that resulted from a flawed safety culture. Shuttle Program Shortcomings The flight readiness process, which involves every organization affiliated with a shuttle mission, missed the danger signals in the history of foam loss. Generally, the higher information is transmitted in a hierarchy, the more it gets rolled up, abbreviated and simplified. Sometimes information gets lost altogether, as weak signals drop from memos, problem identification systems, and formal presentations. The same conclusions, repeated over time, can result in problems eventually being deemed non-problems. An ordinary example of this phenomenon is how shuttle program managers assumed the foam strike on STS-112 was not a warning sign. See Chapter 6. During the STS-113 flight readiness review, the bipod foam strike to STS-112 was rationalized by simply restating earlier assessments of foam loss. The question of why bipod foam would detach and strike a solid rocket booster spawned no further analysis or heightened curiosity. Nor did anyone challenge the weakness of external tank project manager's argument that backed launching the next mission. After STS-113's successful flight, once again the STS-112 foam event was not discussed at the STS-107 flight readiness review. The failure to mention an outstanding technical anomaly, even if not technically a violation of NASA's own procedures, desensitized the shuttle program to the dangers of foam striking the thermal protection system, and demonstrated just how easily the flight preparation process can be compromised. In short, the dangers of bipod foam got rolled up, which resulted in a missed opportunity to make shuttle managers aware that the shuttle required, and did not yet have, a fix for the problem. Once the Columbia foam strike was discovered, the mission management team chairperson asked for the rationale the STS-113 flight readiness review used to launch in spite of the STS-112 foam strike. In her email, she admitted that the analysis used to continue flying was, in a word, lousy. Chapter 6. This admission, that the rationale to fly was rubber-stamped, is, to say the least, unsettling. The flight readiness process is supposed to be shielded from outside influence, and is viewed as both rigorous and systematic. Yet the shuttle program is invariably influenced by external factors, including, in the case of the STS-107, schedule demands. Collectively, such factors shape how the program establishes mission schedules and sets budget priorities, which affects safety oversight, workforce levels, facility maintenance, and contractor workloads. Ultimately, external expectations and pressures impact even data collection, trend analysis, information development, and the reporting and disposition of anomalies.
These realities contradict NASA's optimistic belief that pre-flight reviews provide true safeguards against unacceptable hazards. The schedule pressure to launch International Space Station Node 2 is a powerful example of this point. Section 6.2. The premium placed on maintaining an operational schedule, combined with ever-decreasing resources, gradually led shuttle managers and engineers to miss signals of potential danger. Foam strikes on the orbiter's thermal protection system, no matter what the size of the debris, were normalized and accepted as not being a safety of flight risk. Clearly, the risk of thermal protection damage due to such a strike needed to be better understood in quantifiable terms. External tank foam loss should have been eliminated or mitigated with redundant layers of protection. If there was in fact a strong safety culture at NASA, safety experts would have had the authority to test the actual resilience of the leading-edge reinforced carbon-carbon panels, as the board has done. Debris Assessment Team Shortcomings Chapter 6 details the debris assessment team's efforts to obtain additional imagery of Columbia. When managers in the shuttle program denied the team's request for imagery, the debris assessment team was put in the untenable position of having to prove that a safety of flight issue existed without the very images that would permit such a determination. This is precisely the opposite of how an effective safety culture would act. Organizations that deal with high-risk operations must always have a healthy fear of failure. Operations must be proved safe, rather than the other way around. NASA inverted this burden of proof. Another crucial failure involves the Boeing engineers who conducted the crater analysis. The debris assessment team relied on the inputs of these engineers, along with many others, to assess the potential damage caused by the foam strike. Prior to STS-107, crater analysis was the responsibility of a team at Boeing's Huntington Beach facility in California, but this responsibility had recently been transferred to Boeing's Houston office. In October 2002, the shuttle program completed a risk assessment that predicted the move of Boeing functions from Huntington Beach to Houston would increase risk to shuttle missions through the end of 2003 because of the small number of experienced engineers who were willing to relocate. To mitigate this risk, NASA and United Space Alliance developed a transition plan to run through January 2003. The board has discovered that the implementation of the transition plan was incomplete and that training of replacement personnel was not uniform. STS-107 was the first mission during which Johnson-based Boeing engineers conducted analysis without guidance and oversight from engineers at Huntington Beach. Even though STS-107's debris strike was 400 times larger than the object's crater is designed to model, neither Johnson engineers nor program managers appealed for assistance from the more experienced Huntington Beach engineers, who might have cautioned against using crater so far outside its validated limits. Nor did safety personnel provide any additional oversight. NASA failed to connect the dots, the engineers who misinterpreted Crater, a tool already unsuited to the task at hand, 
were the very ones the shuttle program identified as engendering the most risk in their transition from Huntington Beach. The board views this example as characteristic of the greater turbulence the shuttle program experienced in the decade before Columbia as a result of workforce reductions and management reforms. Mission Management Team Shortcomings In the board's view, the decision to fly STS-113 without a compelling explanation for why bipod foam had separated on ascent during the preceding mission combined with the low number of mission management team meetings during STS-107, indicates that the shuttle program had become overconfident. Over time, the organization determined it did not need daily meetings during a mission, in spite regulations that state otherwise. Status update meetings should provide an opportunity to raise concerns and hold discussions across structural and technical boundaries. The leader of such meetings must encourage participation and guarantee that problems are assessed and resolved fully. All voices must be heard, which can be difficult when facing a hierarchy. An employee's location in the hierarchy can encourage silence. Organizations interested in safety must take steps to guarantee that all relevant information is presented to decision-makers. This did not happen in the meetings during the Columbia mission. See Chapter 6. For instance, emails from engineers at Johnson and Langley conveyed the depth of their concern about the foam strike, the questions they had about its implications, and the actions they wanted to take as a follow-up. However, these emails did not reach the mission management team. The failure to convey the urgency of engineering concerns was caused, at least in part, by organizational structure and spheres of authority. The Langley emails were circulated among co-workers at Johnson, who explored the possible effects of the foam strike and its consequences for landing. Yet, like Debris Assessment Team co-chair Rodney Rocha, they kept their concerns within local channels and did not forward them to the mission management team. They were separated from the decision-making process by distance and rank. Similarly, mission management team participants felt pressured to remain quiet unless discussion turned to their particular area of technical or system expertise, and, even then, to be brief. The initial damage assessment briefing prepared for the mission evaluation room was cut down considerably in order to make it fit the schedule. Even so, it took 40 minutes. It was cut down further to a three-minute discussion topic at the mission management team. Tapes of STS-107 mission management team sessions reveal a noticeable rush by the meeting's leader to the preconceived bottom line that there was no safety of flight issue. See Chapter 6. Program managers created huge barriers against dissenting opinions by stating preconceived conclusions based on subjective knowledge and experience rather than on solid data. Managers demonstrated little concern for mission safety. Organizations with strong safety cultures generally acknowledge that a leader's best response to unanimous consent is to play devil's advocate and encourage an exhaustive debate. Mission management team leaders fail to seek out such minority opinions. Imagine the difference if any shuttle manager had simply asked, Prove to me that Columbia has not been harmed.
Similarly, organizations committed to effective communication seek avenues through which unidentified concerns and dissenting insights can be raised so that weak signals are not lost in background noise. Common methods of bringing minority opinions to the fore include hazard reports, suggestion programs, and empowering employees to call Time Out, Chapter 10. For these methods to be effective, they must mitigate the fear of retribution, and management and technical staff must pay attention. Shuttle program hazard reporting is seldom used, safety timeouts are at times disregarded, and informal efforts to gain support are squelched. The very fact that engineers felt inclined to conduct simulated blown tire landings at Ames after hours indicates their reluctance to bring the concern up in established channels. Safety Shortcomings The board believes that the safety organization, due to a lack of capability and resources independent of the shuttle program, was not an effective voice in discussing technical issues or mission operations pertaining to STS-107. The safety personnel present in the Debris Assessment Team, Mission Evaluation Room, and on the Mission Management Team were largely silent during the events leading up to the loss of Columbia. That silence was not merely a failure of safety, but a failure of the entire organization. 7.6 Findings and Recommendations The evidence that supports the organizational causes also led the board to conclude that NASA's current organization, which combines in the shuttle program all authority and responsibility for schedule, cost, manifest, safety, technical requirements, and waivers to technical requirements, is not an effective check and balance to achieve safety and mission assurance. Further, NASA's Office of Safety and Mission Assurance does not have the independence and authority that the board and many outside reviews believe is necessary. Consequently, the Space Shuttle Program does not consistently demonstrate the characteristics of organizations that effectively manage high risk. Therefore, the board offers the following findings and recommendations. Findings F7.1-1 Throughout its history, NASA has consistently struggled to achieve viable safety programs and adjust them to the constraints and vagaries of changing budgets. Yet, according to multiple high-level independent reviews, NASA's safety system has fallen short of the mark. F7.4-1 The Associate Administrator for Safety and Mission Assurance is not responsible for safety and mission assurance execution, as intended by the Rogers Commission, but is responsible for safety and mission assurance policy, advice, coordination, and budgets. This view is consistent with NASA's recent philosophy of management at a strategic level at NASA headquarters, but contrary to the Rogers Commission recommendation. F7.4-2 Safety and mission assurance organizations supporting the shuttle program are largely dependent upon the program for funding, which hampers their status as independent advisors. F7.4-3 Over the past two decades, little or no progress has been made toward attaining integrated, independent, and detailed analyses of risk to the space shuttle system. F7.4-4 
system safety engineering and management is separated from mainstream engineering, is not vigorous enough to have an impact on system design, and is hidden in the other safety disciplines at NASA headquarters. F7.4-5. Risk information and data from hazard analyses are not communicated effectively to the risk assessment and mission assurance processes. The board could not find adequate application of a process, database, or metric analysis tool that took an integrated, systemic view of the entire space shuttle system. F7.4-6. The Space Shuttle Systems Integration Office handles all shuttle systems except the orbiter. Therefore, it is not a true integration office. F7.4-7. When the integration office convenes the integration control board, the orbiter office usually does not send a representative, and its staff makes verbal inputs only when requested. F7.4-8. The integration office did not have continuous responsibility to integrate responses to bipod foam shedding from various offices. Sometimes the orbiter office had responsibility, sometimes the external tank office at Marshall Space Flight Center had responsibility, and sometimes the bipod shedding did not result in any designation of an in-flight anomaly. Integration did not occur. F7.4-9 NASA information databases, such as the Problem Reporting and Corrective Action, and the Web Program Compliance Assurance and Status System, are marginally effective decision tools. F7.4-10. Senior Safety, Reliability, and Quality Assurance, and Element Managers do not use the Lessons Learned Information System when making decisions. NASA subsequently does not have a constructive program to use past lessons to educate engineers, managers, astronauts, or safety personnel. F7.4-11. The Space Shuttle Program has a wealth of data tucked away in multiple databases without a convenient way to integrate and use the data for management, engineering, or safety decisions. F7.4-12. The dependence of safety, reliability, and quality assurance personnel on shuttle program support limits their ability to oversee operations and communicate potential problems throughout the organization. F7.4-13. There are conflicting roles, responsibilities, and guidance in the space shuttle safety programs. The safety and mission assurance pre-launch assessment review process is not recognized by the Space Shuttle Program as a requirement that must be followed, NSTS-22778. Failure to consistently apply the pre-launch assessment review as a requirements document creates confusion about roles and responsibilities in the NASA Safety Organization. Recommendations R7.5-1 Establish an independent technical engineering authority that is responsible for technical requirements and all waivers to them, and will build a disciplined, systematic approach to identifying, analyzing, and controlling hazards throughout the life cycle of the shuttle program. The independent technical authority does the following as a minimum. Develop and maintain technical standards for all space shuttle program projects and elements. Be the sole waiver-granting authority for all technical standards, 
conduct trend and risk analysis at the subsystem, system, and enterprise levels. Own the failure mode, effects analysis, and hazard reporting systems. Conduct integrated hazard analysis. Decide what is and is not an anomalous event. Independently verify launch readiness. Approve the provisions of the recertification program called for in Recommendation R9.1-1. The Technical Engineering Authority should be funded directly from NASA headquarters and should have no connection to or responsibility for schedule or program cost. R7.5-2 NASA Headquarters Office of Safety and Mission Assurance should have direct line authority over the entire Space Shuttle Program Safety Organization and should be independently resourced. R7.5-3 Reorganize the Space Shuttle Integration Office to make it capable of integrating all elements of the Space Shuttle Program, including the orbiter. End of Section 32